He is risen. Let's practice Let's do it one more time. He is risen. Amen. 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 And once more, amen. I ask you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1, please. My name is Pastor, well, my name is Andrew Beebe. My title is Pastor. I'm a, a pastor at LaRue Baptist Church. I've been here before, and I see a lot of familiar faces. So it's a delight to worship with you this morning. Um, and so again, I ask you to open up James chapter 1. Privilege to to read God's word together, to expound it, and to respond to his holy word. I um, was trying to think of what to do when it comes to um, what, to, what text to preach with it being Easter and also with the church, the church here going through a little bit of a, a trial period. Um, and so I'm going to try my best to kind of bring both worlds in and um, bring them together. Uh, so Lord willing, that's what we'll do. Um, follow along as I read, please. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away." For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers uh, falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But rather, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought forth he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In Hebrews 12, just real quick, listen to me. It says, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, God in heaven, I am weak. Your people here are weak. We are weak people. Lord in heaven, we claim to have nothing of our own, but we only claim Jesus Christ who is strong. So, Lord, let us look to him this morning. Let us look to him all our days, Lord. Let us see our sin and see our need and see our need met in Christ he has saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. It is his work, Lord, not our own. 
And so, Lord, let us look to the trials that you give us as a means that you use to grow us in this great salvation that he has trailblazed. Lord, let us look to Jesus now. Please be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Um, That can seem almost kind of taunting to me, at least, whenever I'm going through one of those various sets of trials. Um, It's one thing to say you're going to go through it. It's a whole other thing to say you're going to enjoy it or you're going to consider it joy. It reminds me of one of my many children telling them that not only are you going to eat your peas, but you are going to have a thankful heart to your mother and to God who has given it to you, right? So not only is James here saying that, you know, you're going to go through trials, but he's saying you're going you're gonna to find an enjoyment in it. And that can almost seem taunting, especially as you consider your own trials that you're going through right now, your own hardships. And as you consider that, that, that here James is telling you, consider it joy. Consider it joy. Um, it, even, you know, it reminds me even of, of Jesus um, as he's approaching the cross and, and the Garden of Gethsemane. And if anything, it seems like he was not enjoying that process as he is cry, crying out to his God, as he is full of, 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 of shedding blood, sweats of blood and everything. It, it didn't seem like an enjoyable process to our Lord Jesus while his friends, while his disciples were not praying with him. Um, we can have certain attitudes uh, in our trials that are, that are not what God would have us to have. Not that Jesus was not having that proper attitude, but in our misthinking, we can kind of consider the fact that trials aren't something to be joyfully had. We can have an attitude, I think, that James locates later on in this chapter. There's the attitude of count it all joy as you face trials, and we'll see why, the importance of that. But there's an also kind of attitude we can have to approach the, the, the trials that God gives us in his sovereignty, and I think that's located in verse 13, when in James 1.13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. You see, we, we can have this mindset of, and, you know, that God has given us a certain trial, and obviously he's tempted me to sin with this because how, why else would he give me this thing, um, this, this trial? And you might say to me, I have never once said these words. I have never once, I am a good Christian, I have never once said I am being tempted by God. But I would ask you, if you haven't said that explicitly, do you say that implicitly when you are faced with a trial and you murmur and complain? That God has given you this trial for a particular good that we are about to get to, and instead of seeing it as that and having all joy, you have a heart attitude of complaining. Are you not saying that, well, God, the sovereign God who has given me everything, you must be giving me this for my bad, for my sin, for my temptation to sin, are we not saying that? If not explicitly, are you not saying that implicitly with your attitude? So you might be a good Christian who has never said this explicitly. God has tempted me with sin. But in your attitude, as you receive that temptation, as I'm sorry, you, you receive that trial and you say, well, God must be wanting me to sin because he's given me this. Beloved, you are saying that implicitly. So there's the attitude of, of counting all joy or there's the attitude of opposite of complaining, murmuring. Oh, this is for my bad. Because what does that complaining attitude lead you to? It says, but each person in verse 14, well, he he goes on to say, 
God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. Instead, what, what is it? Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, not God's desire for that trial. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and on the road, sin leads to death. And so we see that whenever we go through trials with a murmuring, complaining heart, God must be doing this for my bad, it leads to your death. That is a deathly attitude. You still, the, the complaining heart, complaining attitude, that's one of those acceptable sins in the evangelical world, well, we see that that kind of attitude leads to death, plain and simple. That's that pathway. But the pathway of joy in our trials, what does that lead to? Where does that bring us? Well, instead of producing death, it produces fruit. Look what it says. In fact, we could say that, it, that the, the complaining attitude in trial doesn't produce anything. It's death. But the one who has joy in his trials, what is God doing in it? Look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces. So God has a will for you in your trial to produce something in you. Not death, but the opposite. To produce something in you. And the first thing he says here is steadfastness. Steadfastness has a, uh, there's a nature, there's a, uh, the meaning behind the word is that there's something applying pressure, but you are remaining steadfast. There's something that is pushing you, that is causing you, or, or is making you want to move, but you are instead steadfast. You are, you are, um, you are answering that being immovable. And so we see that the trial that God gives you is supposed to cause you to grow in strength and steadfastness. It's supposed to produce a new steadfastness. And so without that trial pushing against you, you would not produce that strength. So we see that God gives you trials for production, and the first step in that production is your steadfastness. But it doesn't stop there. He says in verse 4, unless steadfastness then have its own production or its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. God desires for you to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, and the means that he uses to get you towards that end is to bring you through trials. This is what he's doing in them. He's not tempting you to sin. He's not tempting you to have a bad, complaining attitude. He is producing life in you. He's producing perfection in you. Now, we're not perfectionists here. We don't believe that we will one day reach perfection on this side of glory. But we do know that God is doing something very particular in your Christian life. He's grown you after the image of Jesus, who is perfect. And so this is a way in which he is growing you after the blessed image of Christ. And if you as a Christian, you have any other desire than that, you need to check your pulse, your spiritual pulse. Because you as a Christian is to proclaim Christ. You're saying, my desires are no longer my own, but my desires are hidden in the Lord. I want to look like him. And if that means this trial is going to do that, bring it on. Bring it on. This is what God is doing in trials. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, he endured the greatest of all trials. To receive the wrath of God on the cross is the greatest of all trials, not to mention he did not deserve it of himself. And we see that this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. I just read it in 12. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We are to have joy as we encounter our trials. Jesus had joy as he encountered the cross. Notice that doesn't 
ignore the fact that he was in Gethsemane saying, this is, this is something that I wish would be taken from me, but nevertheless, let your will be done. But nevertheless, it was his joy as he saw the cross, as he saw the trial, to endure it. Why? Because he saw the other end of his trial, which was what, beloved? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He rose again from the dead, and he is at the Father's right hand. He endured the cross knowing that he would receive glory from it and he would be at the right hand of the Father. And beloved, this is the same trail we're going after now, Jesus. We know that in the same similar way, we are enduring the trial. There's a trial set before us and we have our eye on eternity. This is going to produce perfection in me. This is going to produce me looking like Christ. And so therefore, it is worth it. But whenever we are tunnel visioned, whenever our hearts are complaining, murmuring, we hate what's going on. What is the problem? We aren't looking at the seated at the right hand of the Father. We're not looking at the presence of the Father. We are just looking at our problem. And we're not seeing Christ overshadowing it and what he's doing in you in it. No. You see, this is the kind of attitude we must have is to count it all joy because God is producing something in us. He is not leading you to your death. He's leading you to life in Christ. That is what he's doing with every single various trial you, face, you are facing. That's hard to have joy, to have this in your mind. Consider the things that you're struggling with now. It is easier said than done. To not have a murmuring heart that leads to death, but rather a heart that's full of joy because he's producing life in you, that is entirely difficult. Even the various kinds, right? I, one of the trials I think of is, is whenever um, it was our second, what time are we at? We're, it was our second child. We have five boys now. And it was at our, our second child. We're in, uh, at the ultrasound, the first ultrasound. It's an exciting time, right? And um, there's a heartbeat. We're all happy for it. And all of a sudden, there was just this, the, the tension in the room shifted. And I am... I don't know, I guess somewhat oblivious. I didn't realize it, but my wife all of a sudden had a nervous chuckle and said, is everything okay? And the nurse said, no, I'll be back. Um, and, and once she, was, she, she left, I, she, I think the doctor came back. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Someone came back and told us a condition that our daughter, well, we didn't know it was a daughter yet, but our daughter had was anencephaly, and that is a condition of, of um, basically where she was not going to survive birth. She would survive being in the womb, but not birth, right? And so, so we're told that, that she will carry most likely to full term, but she won't survive that at birth. And so now, as I'm looking at my wife's growing stomach, what I should be considering is life, right? I, I know that that's actually death that's, that's going to come forth, right? And, and, and I hear echoing, right, the scriptures of how I'm supposed to view this and hear this, that this is actually my joy here. This is, this is joy to be had here. There's joy to be had in this situation, because there's two different ways I can look at this. Joy, or I can complain and murmur and say, God has tempted me to sin with this. Instead of giving us a healthy baby, giving us an unhealthy baby, right? Or I can have joy knowing that God is going to do something good with this. He's going to produce fruit with this. But beloved, to have that mindset is entirely difficult. But then there's like the more minor various trials, right? I'm making a, 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 a coop for my turkeys right now. 
And, and I thought this thing would take like two hours and then I could do the rest of the work I had to do yesterday. But the, the thing took eight hours, right? There's so much frustration in that. And here's my eight-year-old boy watching me complain and murmur. Even in that various trial, there's so much life to be had. There's so much fruit to be had there. But instead, what am I doing? I'm complaining. I'm murmuring. I'm assuming that God is using this, this, this hardship of taking way longer to make the simple coop, right, for my death and not for good, it is so difficult to have a heart full of joy and to remember what God is doing in each and every trial that you face, whether big, small, or somewhere in the middle. It is difficult. And so that's why I think James gives us two main things that we need to have as we pursue this godly mindset. And the first one is wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Wisdom is applied knowledge, right? You know, and so you do what's right based off of that knowledge. So if any of you lacks wisdom of what God's doing in this trial that he's given to you, of having a joyful attitude as you go through this trial, if any of you lacks that wisdom, what are we to do? It's got to get better. It's got to be better. No. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it might be given to him. No, it will be given to him. Anytime you see in scriptures, God promises, I will do this for you. Highlight it, remember it, and in faith, ask God for it. He will never let you down. He will never let you down. That is something that in counseling and everything that people forget that in their trials and their hardships as they're doing things wrong, they are to, in faith, ask God for this because he has promised to give you it. We have a God who loves you. You know that God, if you're in Christ, he loves you. He wants your best in Jesus. And he's not joking when he says that. He's not two-faced. He's not, he's not like a shadow that changes. He wants that for you. So if you are struggling with this, what do you do? You go to God in faith, and you say, you have promised it. You will deliver. I know. Please, God, give me the wisdom to do this. We are to go to our God who loves you. He's generous. He gives good gifts. That's what he does. But he says in verse 6, James, let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You see, when we ask, we need to ask in faith and confidence and trust that what God says he will do. We do not ask in faith of our own abilities or our own strength because we fail miserably. But we ask in faith of who God is. He has promised it. He will do it. And we have faith in it, so we ask of it confidently in him, not in self. When you are lacking the wisdom needed in order to have joy in your trials to see the other end of fruit and glory, you are to ask. Let them ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven, tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Whenever we are not placing our trust in in God and we ask in in a lack of faith, we are not to expect anything. but But God calls us to believe and trust in him and his promises and not to be double-minded in that. The second thing we need is humility. The second thing we need is humility. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The lowly brother here, I think what he's referring to is that um, is, is a poor brother in Christ. And not spiritually poor, but uh, wealthy. He's not wealthy. He's poor. He doesn't have much money. And I think it, it, the context is, is most likely is that the trial that this brother is going through, the trial that he's referring to, what he's going through, is that his goods are being taken away from him. Because of his obedience to Jesus Christ, his goods are being taken away from him. And so the trial that Christ has brought this person through is that I'm going to take your goods away from you because of your obedience to Jesus. And he says that that person right there, they need to boast in that. Instead of lamenting in that, instead of murmuring in that, they're to boast in that. Why? Because he is exalted in it. Because in that trial, fruit is being produced. He's saying that the brother who is in a trial where his goods are being taken away from him, instead of lamenting that, he needs to exalt in that because fruit is being produced in that trial. But the brother, the rich, he says in verse 10, in his humiliation, that is the one who hasn't gotten his goods taken away, the one who is rich, he needs to boast too, but not in his wealthy status, but in his humiliation. Well, what does he mean? Because he says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers. The grass, its flower fails, or I'm sorry, falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's saying that the rich man, instead of boasting in his wealth, all that stuff is going to burn up anyways. And so he needs to exalt in his humiliation. It's said that that, all that's going to be gone anyways. And And I find it very interesting that the things that we complain about in the trials, trial comes and we are murmuring, complaining, right? It's usually things that are going to burn up anyways. Have you noticed that? Um, the things that we like to complain and murmur about are the things that we try to grab hold of and is going to burn up anyways. And the point is, is that if our minds are set on the eternal realities of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, eternal life, and everything that happens is so that we can reflect his great image and receive that life, right? Then though that doesn't burn away, and we are not set to murmur and complain, but instead we say, let it come so I can look like that. But when our minds are set on the things of earth, we find it very difficult to have such a joyful attitude. It reminds me of what Jesus, when he says, do not, uh, do not be worried, and, and in Matthew 5, when he says, do not, um, uh, do not be anxious, right? And he talks about clothing. He talks about food. He talks about all these things that we can be anxious about that's going to burn up anyways. And what is the antidote? He says, don't worry about all those things. The Father knows you need them. He's going to give it to you. And what is it? So he says, put off worry and put on what? Seek first the what? The kingdom, right? Seek first the things that will not be burnt up. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Well, very often, again, whenever we're in a mindset of complaining, murmuring, you can bet your bottom, bet your bottom dollar, I think the saying is, is that your focus is on the things that will burn up anyways. We are to boast in our humiliation and in our lowliness. We are to, we are to see exaltation. So let's look back now with what we need. We need wisdom. We need humiliation. And let's look back at the person who is uh, our attitude of murmuring and complaining. What does this person need? Look back at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. What does this person need? When we're in that state, 
The trial has hit us. We don't like it. And this person says, we say, I am being tempted by God. What does he need? He needs wisdom. He needs proper understanding and practice wisdom. He needs proper wisdom. I am being tempted by God. This guy needs wisdom. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That is not what he's doing in that trial. He is producing life in you. He's not producing sin or death in you. But what else does this person need? In verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What else does that person need? He has his own desire. He needs humiliation. He needs to humble his desires. He needs to humble what he wants and he needs to repent of it and say, I want what Christ wants. I no longer want my own desires. I want my desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And I want him. You see, we're caught up in, these, in this sin. We're caught up in these trials and, 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 and murmuring. It's because our desires are no longer under the sway of the cross. Our desires are our own desires. And they need to be humbled. And then in so humbling them to the cross, they are exalted in Christ. We need humility in those moments because we know that our desires ultimately have went astray. And of course, we read, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. You know, I forgot to, this is what happens when you don't preach with notes, you forget things, and sometimes it's, they're very important things. But we, we pass over verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, right? This is the, the joyful, right? Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because it's producing steadfast in you. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is what God is doing for you in your trial. Is he, this is a means he's using to give you the crown of life. And the, the second one is at the uh, at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God in your trial is producing you to be is, is producing fruit in you. You are to be a first fruit after the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think 16 and 17 and 18, I, I think this is a good summary of, of everything that's been said. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Stop being deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift is comes from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, this is a conviction that you must have in the moment of your trial and hardship. You must have the conviction that everything God gives me is a perfect and good gift. Everything. The healthy child, the unhealthy child. The good circumstances, the bad circumstances. Everything God gives me is a perfect and good gift because his desire for me in the Lord Jesus Christ is to conform me to the image of Jesus. Everything he gives me is a perfect gift from him. It can be easy to forget that when you are in the middle of a trial or approaching it. This is a kindness from God who loves you and has given you good things. He doesn't change, James says. It can be very easy. Again, we might not say it explicitly because we're too good of Christians to do so, but implicitly when we're murmuring, what are we saying? Well, God has said this is for my good, but I don't believe it right now. This is for my bad. What are we saying? That God is fickle. He's changing. He's changing like a shadow. He said one thing, but he's going to do another. This is the same kind of thing that we were talking about. Um, oh, my mind's leaving me right now. Um, 
I'm for, uh, this is, nevertheless, this is, this is something that needs to be deep-rooted within our heart and mind, that no matter what is going on here, no matter how difficult it is, I know that this is for my good, this is producing good in me to look like Jesus, and since God doesn't change it and he has declared this to be so, this is the, what is happening. This, this is you preaching to your emotions. This is you preaching yourself truth when your emotions aren't falling in line of truth. We live in a culture that tells you that your emotions are always good and you should always listen to them. Disney has told me many times as a child to follow my heart because it is never wrong. Your heart is oftentimes wrong. Emotions are good. Emotions are a God-given thing. But a lot of times your emotions are not bowing the knee to Christ. And so this is you when your emotions are out of whack and you are believing these lies that Satan has given you to believe and you're murmuring and complaining, this trial is for my bad. Obviously, this is for my death and everything. You need to preach to your emotions. You need to bow them to the knee, bow the knee to Jesus and say, no, the Lord doesn't change. He's doing good things here, even though this is difficult. And this is through the path of obedience going to produce fruit just like Jesus has done. So I shall do. This is what God is doing. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, not the fickleness of our emotions, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Our dear Lord Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, was facing the greatest trial ever. Now, even before the cross, he took on flesh. And you look at the times in the Gospels where he says, how long must I be with you? You understand that the word of God Jesus Christ, the Logos, he was used to being in fellowship with the Father and Holy Spirit. He was used to that. That's what he was used to, right? He takes on flesh. He enters our world, and now he's in fellowship with sinful men. I can imagine him saying, how long until I'm back to be with the Father? And not only that, that it was low enough for him to come and take on flesh and be with us, but he also takes on the cross. And in the cross, he receives the wrath of God, the, the greatest trial anyone could face. And you know, and he did not deserve it. He did it because he loves you if you believe upon him. And in so doing, he receives the greatest trial. He endures it because of the joy that was set before him. Why? Because he knew on the other end of his obedience to the Father, that there was life to be had, that he would be at the right hand of the Father. And not only life for himself, life with the Father, but he would give life to his elect chosen ones, his church, his bride. And so why Jesus had the joy set before him is because he saw the other side, and he saw that there was life to be had, conformity to God, and union with him. And not only for himself, but for us too. So how do you view your trials? Do you see it in the same eternal way, or are you just tunnel vision right now on your hardship? Do you preach yourself this truth every day? Because, beloved, you'll preach it to yourself today, and overnight your heart makes idols, and your focus will be on that trial once more without the vision of Jesus Christ and him crucified and rose again to life. There is a need for you, beloved, to each morning, Wake up and cry out to your God in light of your trial. 
and say, oh, Lord, give me the wisdom here that I need to see this reality as it truly is and not as my emotions are telling me it is. Give me the humility to desire not my own will but yours, to desire not my own will of ease and whatever thing that your heart's wanting in that moment, but give me the desire that I would look more like Christ. And if it's your will that I would suffer today for it, oh, may I follow what Jesus our Lord has done. He suffered for the sake of his people, that they would be close to God. Oh, Lord, let me follow in his beautiful footprints. May that be the way you look at your trials today. And may you remind yourself of that blessed truth. That's your worship, by the way. And may we do this, and as we do this, we grow after the image of Jesus, our great Savior. Let us pray. Oh, God in heaven, I fail at this miserably. Lord, I, I consider how I fail at that when I in, encounter a bigger trial, and I, I, I consider how I, I fail at that when I encounter various smaller trials. Lord, I, I tend to, to murmur and complain. I have a heart that does not see what you're doing, and even the smallest of trials to produce life in me. Instead, I am believing if not explicitly, I'm believing implicitly that you are doing this for my harm. Forgive me for how easy it is for me to lack that wisdom. Oh, Lord, but you called us to look to your son. You've called us to ask you for the wisdom and the humility, knowing that you give generously because you love your children and you love to give good gifts. You love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So let us be people who ask. Let us lament our sin. Let us cry tears over them, but let us not stop there. Let us not end there, but let us end in Jesus Christ. He's the one that endured the greatest of trial and yet produced the greatest of fruit so that we could do the same because it's his fruit that he's given to us. This is what you're doing in us. You are making us look like Jesus. So let us be thankful for that this morning. And let us not just remember that now and then carry on, but let us hold that true to our heart and preach ourselves the gospel every day, knowing that everything we go through is a gift from you as our good God. You don't change. And so this is your purpose. And so let us conform our desires to Christ and see the great things you do in us as we look to him all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.